pregnant pause. Isn't it a glorious day out there? You can enjoy it with me. <laughs> Actor David Suchet, who played Belgian detective Hercule Poirot in the uh, Agatha Christie mi uh, mysteries on BBC for 25 years, uh, was raised in a Jewish home. For many years, Suchet was desperately searching for meaning in his life, and he looked at several religions, but none of them seemed to satisfy him. They didn't seem to have the ring of truth. And in 1986, Suchet was in a hotel room, and he felt overwhelmed and in need and decided that he'd look more deeply into Christianity, and he wanted to read a New Testament. Uh, he didn't want to read the Gospels because he didn't know if Jesus even existed. But he knew that the Apostle Paul existed. So he began with the book of Romans. And as he read through the book of Romans, when he got to Romans chapter 8, he said, I found what I was looking for in Romans 8. And suddenly, life made sense to him. And that began a journey that led him to Christ. When you read Romans 8, you see that this world is broken. It's not as it came from the hand of God. Uh, you, you see the, the grand meta-narrative that God forms. Satan deforms. Jesus transforms. That is the big picture, the grand story. You see that God is in control. And he uses suffering for his purposes in our lives. And in fact... In the incarnation, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, he enters into that suffering. Suffers for us. And the Bible gets very personal and very practical very quickly. Because in one sense, it's easy to talk about suffering broadly, suffering in general. But when you're talking about suffering in particular, this suffering, this diagnosis, this loss of your job or you're rejected by someone that you love or your child is hurt. That's the hard stuff. Romans 8 places our suffering squarely in the context of our spiritual growth. And it's really a simple point. It's a, it's a profound point and it changes how we view suffering. It's an intensely practical point for how we live and how we think. And here it is. Our, our present groaning, what the Bible calls our groaning, can lead to our present growth as matured believers in Christ and will lead into future glory. And we'll be looking at several passages this morning. What we're going to be heading towards three in particular, Isaiah 52 Hebrews 1 and James 1, if you want to mark those, we're going to go there eventually, not just right now. But what I want us to do is to see and probe the link between sonship and suffering and how they come together to produce spiritual growth. And I'm using the word groaning because that's the word that the Bible uses. Look at verse 8, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 22. Chapter 8, verse 22, the whole creation groans. Verse 23 uh, we ourselves groan. And, and in verse uh, 
26, the Holy Spirit prays with groanings that can't be uttered. That is the Bible's term to describe that travail, that suffering, the, the, the agony that sometimes is a part of our lives in this world. Not the next, but this one here and now. And yet, at the same time, there's the word glory. Look at verse 17. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him, we may also be glorified with him. Look at verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 21. The creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then down in verse 30. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of that is a part of what this text is telling us. And, and yet at the same time, growth, spiritual growth, maturity is the subject of the whole chapter as the Holy Spirit transforms our groaning into the glory that is yet to come as we depend upon him transforms our groaning into growth, anticipating the glory. Now, in our studies in Romans eight, we've said so far that if you're a Christian, you are God's adopted child and, and you have the right in verse 15. Look at back at verse 15 to call him Abba father. You are God's heir, verse 17, his and co-heirs with Christ. Hebrews says that Jesus is the heir of all things. And, and he shares that inheritance with us as his adopted brothers and sisters. And that is what is going to take place in the future. And it's very clear from many passages, but it's explicit in Romans 8, 18. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's in the future. And part of our adoption into the family of God that we studied last week necessarily includes Suffering here and now. But what kind of suffering? Well, you would expect, okay, there's the suffering that the New Testament talks about quite a bit related to persecution for standing firm for Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture that stands against him. The, the scripture is filled with examples and exhortations about that. As one scholar said, those who are to be co-heirs with Christ in the future must identify him with him in a hostile world now. So there is that. But there's also the suffering that comes from life in a fallen world. Everyday life. Natural evil, moral evil that philosophers talk about. But it's clear that that's what's in mind in verse 19, which speaks of the anxious longing of creation. Verse 20 reminds us of what happened in the fall when the creation was subjected to futility. That's Trouble in this life that simply comes from living in a fallen world. And whenever, when suffering comes to us, in whatever forms it comes, do we throw up our hands and, and, and cry out that God is not a good father, that he's guilty of child abuse if we're his children, if we suffer? Do we run away from Abba, Father? No, the point that we made last week is we, we run to Abba, Father, for comfort and spiritual renewal and growth in the middle, in the midst of our trials. So the first thing I want us to look at this morning is, is what Romans eight seventeen is saying. And then, and, and this is, I mean, we've been studying up to this point and I just, yeah, there's so much richness in this passage that we had to, 
belabor this point, because if there's anything worthy of being belabored, it's this point. And, and then second, after looking at what Romans 8, 17 is saying, I want to make the case that sonship in this fallen world necessarily includes suffering. Primarily with Jesus, the heir, and with us as his co-heirs. Last week, we stopped with the truth in verse, verses 15 through 17 that we are God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't earn our standing in him. It is by believing in Jesus as our Savior, the one who died on the cross in our place for our sins, who took our penalty. He who knew no sins became sin for us. That's the point that we made last week, and we focused on one word, and that word was adoption. We, we talked about how that word is used in the New Testament. We talked about Roman adoption and contrasted it with Greek and Jewish adoption and the richness of what this doctrine gives us. Then we studied our text phrase by phrase until we came to the last half of verse 17. Now, when you look at verse 17, here's what you might expect to read. Jumping in the middle of verse 17, fellow heirs with Christ, so that we may also be glorified with him. That's what we would expect it to say. That's what I'd kind of like for it to say. That's not what it says. If it said that, then the rest of the chapter could talk about the wonders of that inheritance that we have in Christ, our heavenly uh, blessings that are ours in him. What we don't expect is the middle part, the part that I left out when I just read it. Fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. That's the phrase. Why did that have to be added? I mean, why is that so important? Well, the, the issue is that's the key to your sanctification to your spiritual growth because the next verses do not talk about our future inheritance they talk about coping with suffering in the present world verse 18 immediately explains again i consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us that's in the future now our sufferings alongside those of christ our sufferings are not redemptive as his was. We are the sons of God in a very different sense than he is the son of God. He is the son of God by nature. We are sons of God by grace. His suffering was redemptive. Our suffering is sanctifying. Or at least it can be. That is God's intention for it. Psalm 119, I was reading this uh, two days ago in my devotion. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God uses suffering <clears throat> to bring about all kinds of purposes in your life and in mine. There, there's suffering as a testimony. There's suffering from which we're to learn, educational suffering. There's sanctifying suffering. The thing is, whatever kind of suffering it is, he causes all things to work together for good. Not that all things are good, but they work together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's in Romans 8. Verse 28. This leads me to our, our second point. We've, we've talked about what verse 17 is saying and what it isn't saying and how it leads into verse 18. Here's my second point. There is a connection between our sonship and Jesus as God's unique son and suffering. I said I wanted to make the case that sonship in this fallen world necessarily includes suffering. Okay. Let's take a look at sonship, not just in Romans, but I want to expand this in the Bible as a whole. I've written the passages in your Bible, in your uh, bulletin notes. If you 
if, if you use those. But the bulletin notes have the passages for you. And I'm going to be reading a lot of scriptures to you. And I want, this is where you're going to have to listen aggressively. Um, maybe I should say listen attentively. No, I'll listen aggressively if you want to. So, so listen up. And, and, and hear what these passages are. I want, you to, I want you to grasp the astonishing coherence of what we see in scripture on this point. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God created Adam and Eve. And I want you to know that notice that elsewhere, Adam is called God's son. The final words in Luke's genealogy are Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam's God's son in the sense that he is his creation in his image. But Adam and Adam was to rule alongside his wife Eve to rule over the dominion. But Adam was tempted by Satan and failed miserably. When Adam fell into sin, everything was broken. They no longer were going to rule over the inheritance in the same way that God had intended. They lost that dominion. But listen to what God promised in Genesis 3.15. When he was speaking to Satan, he said, I will put enmity between you and and the woman, so you in Hebrew there is singular, woman there in Hebrew, of course, is singular. And between your seed and her seed. That word is usually a collective noun. But what's interesting is instead of using the plural, he doesn't say they will bruise you on the head. It goes back to the singular. He, there's a specific seed that is to come. He will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. A head wound was a, a destroying wound. A heel wound was a suffering wound. So there's this seed of the woman. The what? Seed of the woman. The, Bi- the, Bi- the Bible doesn't speak that way. Nobody speaks that way. It's not a seed of the woman. It's a seed of the man. But the Bible is very specific about this. In Genesis, this promise in Genesis 3.15. There is this future seed that will come forth the seed of the woman and the the point that's that's going to develop is that God's plan for sonship was not derailed Adam failed miserably yes but as time passed God raised up another son the centuries passed the decades passed the years passed and eventually God raised up another son Moses gave this message to Pharaoh thus says the Lord Israel is my son. Did you hear that? Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Let me back up a little bit. God's plan for Israel included this promise. When God called Abram, in you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. But in you, through you, through this nation, all nations of the earth will be blessed. God's focus was never on just one people, but for his son Israel to show the rest of the world what salvation was like. This son Israel, Exodus 19 tells us, was to become a kingdom of priests. But as you go through the decades and the generations, uh, Abraham was an upright man, but was Abraham a sinful man? A, yes, B, no. A, good. Yes, he was. We read in startling honesty about his flaws. Was Isaac a sinful man? Yes. 
Was Jacob a sinful man? You bet. What about the 12, 12 sons? Were they perfectly perfect? As you, in fact, as you go down the generations, the moral degeneration seems to intensify. Eventually, Jacob and his sons ended up in Egypt with their brother Joseph, and they were preserved there as a family in one particular location in Egypt. And there they became a great nation because God was still going to preserve this people. And in Romans 9, verses 3 and 4, Paul speaks of the Israelites to whom, listen, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. So the same theme comes in here. And God brought them up out of Egypt. I read the passage to you where God calls him his sons to, to Pharaoh. Let my sons go. And he placed them in their own promised land. And there Israel was to become the promised seed of the woman. And the seed, I'm sorry, the singular seed was to come through Israel, the prophet Hosea wrote out of Egypt, I have called my son, Hosea 11, 1. But as a nation, the Jews failed miserably. Over and over, you study the Old Testament to the point that where you get in the New Testament that they claimed sonship. We are God's sons, but they don't act like God's sons. Listen to this exchange between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, they're in the middle of a, of a discussion here. And, and Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Remember Abraham's in you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks as a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. God forms, Satan deforms. But again, God's plan for sonship was not derailed. The Old Testament story continued to progress. I'm going to back up into it for just a moment. Israel failed miserably as God's son. Adam had failed miserably as God's son. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob failed miserably as God's son. God granted their Israel's request to have a king, and the kingship was established. Saul failed miserably as God's son. So God made a covenant with David and, and, and God said in 2 Samuel 7, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And whenever the next descendant in the line of David was coronated, Psalm 2 was read. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Do you hear?
hear echoes of that in Hebrews? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This future son would be the king. But it was not to be David. It was not to be Solomon. They both failed miserably. Are you getting the picture of miserable failure here? The promised son would be a very special son. And, and as the prophets were inspired to reveal more and more, that future son is described in terms that are both human and divine. He would be a radically unique person. And in this son, all the nations of the earth would somehow be blessed through the line of David. Listen to the words of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever, ever. Daniel was given a vision of the coming king. In Daniel 7, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, which is a term indicating his true humanity. One like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. And you, all nations of the earth, will be blessed. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Isaiah described the king in these terms. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government and peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Are you getting the picture here? The prophet Micah said, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me to be the ruler. One will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Micah 5, 2. And yet this future son, and I want to have you turn with me to Isaiah 52. This future son, also called the son of man, simply because he's a son, will suffer. As more and more of the divine nature of the son is revealed, more about the suffering of the son is also revealed. We read of this in Isaiah 52. We'll not be doing an exposition of this, but just listen to the words and think about Jesus. These words written 800 years before Jesus was born. Verse 13, speaking of the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. He's speaking about the sprinkling of the ritual purity with blood. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told, for what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him, as before God, like a tender shoot. Like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. Apparently, Jesus did not walk around the earth with a halo around his head. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. And yet he was with a rich man in his death. The thieves on the other side, Joseph of Arimathea in this tomb, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good measure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Or in New Testament terms, it is finished. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide booty among the strong because he that's called an inheritance that he shares with co-heirs. Because he poured out himself to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Interceded for the transgressors? Yes. He's our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you understand why when the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 was reading this passage, he said, when, when Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless somebody explain this to me, of whom is the prophet speaking, of himself or of someone else? And getting into the chariot, I'm going to read you what he says. Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Not ending with this passage, but beginning with this passage. Here's what I want you to see is God's transformative plan was revealed. Sonship for Jesus included suffering. And if we identify with Jesus as our Savior, our suffering, our sonship, is a, suffering is a part of that commitment. What I'm trying to get you to see is what, a lesson I'm trying to learn myself. If, if I'm a, a child of God, there is a way of looking at the hard times that is transformative in our souls. Okay, well, now, the promised, I'm not done with sonship. The promised seed of the woman was not Israel as a nation. It was not Israel, any of Israel's kings. Israel failed miserably. All the kings failed miserably. The seed was the coming Messiah. And when Jesus is taken out of Egypt to Nazareth to grow up, Matthew 2.15 says this is the ultimate fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt 
have I called my son? Because and Matthew doesn't bat an eye equating that with Jesus being raised in Nazareth, or being, being taken out of, um, of uh, Egypt. Because seen in this context, Matthew's use of Hosea's prophecy makes perfect sense. At his baptism in Matthew 3, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well placed. You got it? This is the one. This is my son. And just as in the first temptation with the first Adam, Satan tempted by saying, yea, hath God said, denying God's word, questioning God's word, what God said was, this is my son. Next chapter, first verses. In the temptation, the tempter come, came to him and said, Matthew 4, 3, if you are the son, yea, hath God said. Verse 6, if you are the son, yea, hath God said. This is as a direct and intentional echo of Genesis 3, where Satan attempted uh, tempted Adam and Eve. Jesus' temptation displaced the temptation of Adam. Which, because uh, Adam failed. How? Miserably. Yeah, he did. And it, and it also resembled the temptations of Israel throughout the wilderness wanderings because Israel failed. Yeah, miserably. Every one of Jesus' responses in temptation with Satan came out of the book of Deuteronomy, Israel's uh, constitution in the wilderness. So we see the sonship at his baptism. We see sonship at his temptation. Listen to this. At his transfiguration, when the veil was lifted and glory was partially revealed. Matthew 17, 5. A bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Adam failed miserably, but the one who was born the seed of the woman, the second Adam, lived a sinless life and paid the penalty for the sins of the world so that we might become the sons of God. For Jesus, sonship included suffering. What about for us? Well, when you read Romans 8 in this context, in the light of what we've just seen, Scripture is clear, while sonship brings privileges, mostly realized in the future, Sonship also brings sufferings in the present. But our suffering has eternal purpose. Our present groanings can lead to present growth, which will lead to future glory. When Paul, our, our, our church motto, to know Christ and to make him known is anchored in Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of his sufferings. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ says Paul, I, I, Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. And then later he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Romans one to five makes the point that on our own, we fail miserably. We cannot save ourselves. 
Romans 6 through 8 makes the point that on our own, we fail miserably. We can't sanctify ourselves. And the answer in Romans 1 through 5 is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The answer in Romans 6 through 8 is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then in chapters 9 through 11, the answer to everything is the absolute sovereignty of God the Father Almighty. Listen, folks, this is biblical doctrine for hurting people. It's not, this shouldn't be information. This should be formation, okay? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction. And he's talking about the sufferings of this world. And he calls it momentary because it's just for my lifetime. Doesn't feel momentary, but it is. Momentary light. Why does he call it light? He's about to contrast it with the word glory. The Hebrew word for glory meant to be heavy. So momentary light affliction. That's the affliction's light. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal, it's not momentary, weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So spiritual growth now as sons. Back to Romans eight seventeen, Includes suffering. And the point is being made here. Is in this world we will suffer, but suffering is a part of our spiritual growth, part of our groanings. It's a part also of the glue that binds us together as a band of brothers and circle of sisters. It's not something outside God's plan. It's integral integral to God's plan. Because for Jesus, sonship morphed into suffering, which became glory. Okay. I'm going to read some scriptures to you again. I want you to listen aggressively. All right. First Peter one, 10 and 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the listen, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow suffering. Glory. First Peter four. Don't be surprised of the fiery ordeal which which is among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled in the name of Christ, you suffer. If you're reviled, in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of gl- the glory of God rests on you. Sufferings and glory. First Peter five. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Sufferings and glory. Hebrews chapter two, verses nine and ten. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, through whom are all things, and bringing, listen, bringing many sons to glory. Adopted glory. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So for Jesus, suffering morphed into, and sonship morphed into suffering, which became glory. It's the same for us. Okay. It's not a lesson I really want to embrace, but it's true. Suffering in this life is not an add-on to the journey. It's what fuels the journey. God told Ananias to go to Saul of Tarsus after he had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he says this, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And there's this strange explanatory statement. For I will show him how much he must suffer. For my name's sake. We've already studied this in Romans 5. Verses 3 and 4. We exult in our tribulations. That's suffering. Knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. Suffering is a fuel. That propels us forward. Into growth. Our present groaning can lead to present growth. Which will lead to future glory. God wants you to understand. How he sees your suffering. That doesn't mean that every bit, everything in your life that comes that causes you suffering is good. It's not. But that in the midst of it, God is working all things together for good. But to, to benefit from that good, you have to be his child. Because it says, the scripture says, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. There's a distinct pattern here for sonship. Suffering and glory. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You're in the battle. I mean, you just are. You're in the battle. The battle with evil requires suffering. And if you live in this fallen world, you can't avoid the battle. The issue is whose side are you on? God permitted a world in which suffering took place because he permitted a world in which mankind had choice. Man chose sin. God doesn't take pleasure in our suffering, but he does work all things together for good through it. And he worked in order. In fact, he entered the world to redeem the world and to put an end to suffering. That's what Christmas is about when God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he did so so that he would suffer in our place so that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And as I've said many times, God permitted a plan from eternity past, in which he himself will become the chief victim of his own plan. Dorothy Sayers, the renowned British crime writer and playwright, said, and since I started with David Suchet as an actor, I'll I'll, I'll close with Dorothy Sayers. She said, what do we find God doing about this business of sin and evil? God did not abolish the fact of evil. He transformed it. He did not stop the crucifixion. He rose from the dead. So what do we do? When we're dealing with bereavement, with disease, financial problems, loss of job, loss of a child, loss of a parent, loss of a sibling, what do we do? What if we're faced with death? Three closing thoughts. First of all, rethink. Secondly, run. And third, rely. Rethink. Suffering is a part of God's plan it's a part of the process it's not purposeless and if you're and listen parents 
When your children are going through hard times, the older they get, the less you're going to be able to fix it. Don't train them that it has to be fixed. Help them to learn from what they're going through. Okay? Help them to understand that this will form their character and to see that as they grow. So it has a purpose. And so I have to, what can I learn about myself? What do I learn about God? How can I change from this? Do you know what the first imperative in the New Testament is? In the Greek New New Testament, the very first imperative, very first. And I'm talking about the order in which the New Testament books were written. The very first imperative in the New Testament is from the book of James, first book written, James 1. Listen to verse 2. Here's the imperative. Consider. You ready for it? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work. So that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So rethink. Consider. Second, run. Run to Abba, Father. Don't run from him. Run into his arms. When Paul said, when Paul was experiencing his thorn in the flesh, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. I'm well content with them. I'm content with that. For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We suffer for his name. When we suffer for his name's sake, what that does is it places him as central in your life and in your suffering. And by the way, when we suffer, he suffers. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Said Jesus. So rethink. Run to him. And third, rely on one another. Bear one another's burdens. We come alongside each other. There are other scriptures to look at with this. But here's the thing. If we're his, we're part of his family. We're adopted by Father Abba and we share in those family burdens. We re-enter. We enter into each other's sufferings with each other we pray for one another we ask about each other we check on each other all right we do that in our growth groups we do that in our church how are you doing we come alongside and help we don't do it perfectly for sure but that is what we should be doing so we rethink we run to and we rely on one another i'm going to close with verses from hebrews chapter 12 All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, and here's our job with each other, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to engage in this study. Uh, We know, Lord, that this is just a tip of the iceberg of the truth of your word. 
We pray, Father, that we would understand what it means to enter into your sonship and to rejoice in what you have brought about in our lives, to rely on you, and day by day to be more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Grab a hymn book, and if you'll turn to hymn number 43, we're going to close with Great is Thy Faith.